Well, good evening. It's good to see everyone. I'm quite excited about our, our new series, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it is the greatest sermon that was ever preached because it is from the greatest preacher who ever walked the earth, the Prince of Preachers, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It's uh, probably the most well known sermon in the whole world. And people love to say that that's sort of their religion, that's a summation of their religion. Uh, People often like to say things like, I don't like the church very much, but I like Jesus, and I like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, For example, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, I'm sure you've all heard of him, uh, famous uh, pacifist, he actually spent a few years in in South Africa and then uh, was involved in gaining independence for for India, Uh, he said this, he said the message of Jesus, as I understand it, is contained in the Sermon on the Mount, unadulterated and taken as a whole. If then I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, Oh yes, I am a Christian. Okay, so he was, he was happy to take the Sermon on the Mount. Notice what he said though, my own interpretation of it. Now, unfortunately we're not allowed to do that kind of thing. Uh, we can't take the Bible and just interpret it ourselves uh, and you know, put our own slant on it and the bits we don't like we leave out. Uh, what this shows us is that Gandhi didn't really understand the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us what it means to be a true Christian. And hopefully as we go through this series, you will see how amazing the sermon is and how uh, challenging it is, but also how glorious it is for God's children. Now, just a bit of background. So this is just an introduction. We're not really going to spend time on the Beatitudes or anything like that. So this just gives us a bit of a setting, a bit of an overview of of the Sermon on the Mount. So it is found in Matthew's Gospel, so you can turn there, Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, Matthew wrote his Gospel primarily for a Jewish audience. Okay, so each Gospel writer had a different audience in mind and had different intentions. Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience to show that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, is the promised son of David, the great king who would come. And so he, he writes to Jews and there are certain things that show us that he takes Jewish concerns into account. For example, he doesn't say the kingdom of God, he says the kingdom of heaven. So... Uh, you don't, if you're reading through the Gospels, you don't need to worry what's going on here. Is this a different thing? Is the kingdom of heaven a different thing to the kingdom of God? It's the same thing, just that the Jews did not like to say God. Uh, they didn't like to say Lord or God. And so uh, the, the uh, Jews would say things like heaven instead, because that's God's place. That's where God is found. And so instead of having to say God, because they were worried about blasphemy, and so Matthew, Matthew acknowledges that and he doesn't offend unnecessarily and so he says the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's always been the first gospel. So every list that we've had, Matthew comes first. It is 
uh, the primary gospel. Let me read the first two verses and then we can ask some questions of the text. So Matthew 5 verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... And then that goes into the Beatitudes. And you'll have to wait for next week to the the start of the Beatitudes. So we're just going to look at those two verses. So the first thing is, to whom? To whom is, first question to ask, to whom is Jesus speaking? So you'll notice there's two groups there. There's the crowds. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus sits down on this mountain. And his disciples gather around him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. So Jesus starts to teach his disciples. But we know already the crowds are are around. Uh, So there's really two two levels, two layers. There are the disciples immediately around the Lord Jesus. And then the crowds. And if you jump down to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 verse 28. uh, Matthew says this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So who is Jesus talking to? Well, the first answer is primarily to his disciples. So the Sermon on the Mount is primarily for believers in Jesus Christ. But the crowds also heard it, and so if anyone is an unbeliever or not sure, the Sermon on the Mount is also for for them. It is to show what the kingdom of God is like. It is really the manifesto of Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like? When did Jesus uh, give this sermon? When did it occur? Well, according to Matthew, it occurs early on in Jesus' ministry. Matthew divides his... His gospel, uh, sort of along into five sections, divided by five teaching portions of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first teaching portion. Uh, You can see in chapter 4, verse 23, it says there, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus has started his ministry. He's going throughout Galilee uh, and he's going into the synagogues and he is proclaiming, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, that's further north. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's over on on the east, that was a Gentile area, and from Jerusalem and Judea, that is south, those are Jewish areas, and from beyond the Jordan. And so these great crowds are coming to follow the Lord Jesus as he started his ministry, uh, and now Jesus gives this this teaching, this uh, Sermon on the Mount. Luke also has a similar sermon at the beginning of his gospel, Luke chapter 6, which is called the Sermon on the Plain, because it says he came down from a mountain to a flat space, uh, and he he gave this sermon. And there are lots of similarities, but there are also some differences. 
So people have tried to say there's contradictions between the two. I think the answer is simply that Jesus was an itinerant preacher. We, we read it here. He goes throughout Galilee. He's going to all different places, to synagogues, different areas throughout Israel and further afield. Uh, and he's preaching this, a similar message all over the place. Uh, and so he would have given similar sermons wherever he, he went. Uh, you can find this for yourself. You know those conference speakers? You, know, you listen to them enough times, you know, wait a minute, you already gave that talk somewhere else. Okay? Uh, Jesus was doing the same thing because he had to teach uh, the whole of Israel what the kingdom of God was and what it meant. And so uh, I think it's two different accounts, uh, but you don't need to lose sleep over that. The fuller one is here in, in Matthew 5 through 7. And so Jesus is showing that his kingdom has come. Now where? Where did Jesus give this, this sermon? We don't know the exact mount, mountain, but you can see there in verse 1, he went up on the mountain. And so it is on a mountain, obviously, the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know exactly where it was. Um, in church history, sort of any, you know, if they think Jesus went anywhere, they built a church. So all over Israel there are churches. And so they do have one mountain that they think might be the place, but we don't know for certain But Jan Smuts, he said this, quite interesting. He said, Christianity is a religion of mountains. Christianity is a religion of mountains. And I don't know if you ever thought about that, how important mountains are throughout the whole whole Bible. So we have Mount Sinai, where God gives Moses the law. We have Mount Zion, which is the church. Uh, Even in, uh, we have Mount Carmel as well. Remember where Elijah uh, killed who had the prophets of Baal killed. But even in Matthew's gospel, mountains play a pivotal role. Uh, Jesus, we're told, went up a mountain to go and pray. The transfiguration occurs on a mountain. The Great Commission, after Jesus uh, rises from the dead and meets with the disciples, Matthew 28, it's actually on a mountain as well. And then he ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And so... Quite beautiful to, to follow the theme of mountains through the scriptures and see how important uh, they are. Now, one, you know, scholars have sort of said that Matthew seems to, in a, in a not an overt way, his primary message is to show that Jesus is the descendant of David and that he is the king who has come. But secondarily, it seems that there, is, there are certain pointers. Uh, to remind us of Moses and to show that Jesus is a greater Moses as well. So, for example, even in the, in the, the infancy narratives, remember when Moses was born, the political ruler tried to have him killed. Pharaoh was killing all the, the young males, the baby boys. When Jesus is born, Herod uh, wants to have him killed, wants to have Jesus killed. And so there's an echo there of Moses. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, remember Moses goes up the Mount Sinai and receives the law. The instructions for Israel, how they are to live. And we've been going through some of that in Leviticus. Here Jesus goes up a mountain and gives uh, his people instructions, really law, on how we are to live as God's people. So while it's not overt, uh, I think there is a, a small idea here that 
Jesus is being painted as a new and greater Moses. But what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? What is its purpose? Uh, You can see there that Jesus sits down to teach. Uh, He doesn't stand behind a pulpit. That was not very common. We have one example in in, uh, Nehemiah of that happening. But ordinarily at this time, uh, teachers and rabbis would sit and teach. We're even told of the seat of Moses. So in synagogues, the rabbis would sit down and teach. Um, I'm quite open to that. Uh, (laughs) uh, As I get older, I wouldn't mind just uh, sitting. But uh, he sat down. But the idea here is it's really a judicial position because a judge sits. Isn't that right? When a judge passes sentence, when a judge gives instructions, uh, he is seated. And that's the idea here. Jesus Christ is giving us the, in a succinct three-chapter sermon, what it means to be a Christian. Uh, This is the manifesto. This is the teaching. This is the distillation of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here, Christ is refuting easy believism, or what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. The idea that you can just put your hand up and pray a prayer, and you're a Christian. Uh, And that's it. Nothing in your life has to change. You can just carry on as you were before, but... Uh, Because you got baptized or put your hand up, you're a Christian. And so the Beatitudes and the whole teaching are primarily for those who are in the kingdom. They are the ethics of the kingdom, what it means to be a Christian under the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's not a word that the apostles use a lot. They don't talk about the kingdom so much. They talk more about the church. But I think kingdom is a helpful term. We need to think about it. A king, when they come into power, will issue decrees and edicts and laws. And they will tell their their subjects, I'm the new king, this is what's going to happen now. These are the changes, these are the things that are important for me, this is what it looks like if you are going to uh, be in my kingdom. And so Christ has come and he is the perfect king and so his laws are good and his precepts are right and holy and just. And the kingdom has come because the king has come. And the Sermon on the Mount gives us the mandate. What, what are we to look like? And they also confront and challenge those who are outside what true Christianity is. To show them what true Christianity is. When people say things like Gandhi said, You want to ask them, have you ever actually read the Sermon on the Mount? When people say things like, I like Jesus but not the church, have you ever actually read the Gospels? Have you ever actually read the things that Jesus said? They are highly offensive, aren't they? Many of the things that Jesus said. They are confrontational, they are challenging, they leave you no option. You're either for Him or against Him. There's no sort of grey area. And so we're going to see that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. All of us will be challenged. All of us will be convicted. But hopefully all of us will see that if, if you have a community that can live this out, it'll be the most glorious community. People who, who, are, who love and are not hypocritical. And we're going to see all the people that Jesus confronts and challenges Now, throughout church history, there have been various interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, in Roman Catholicism, they said that the Sermon on the Mount is only for the super holy, for the monks and the priests. Okay? So they said, well, that's, <laughs> this standard is too high. We'll just put it for those guys who get paid to do it. Okay? Uh, sorry for you. Uh, that's not a correct interpretation. Okay? It's for all of God's people. Lutherans said, the idea of the Sermon on the Mount is actually an impossible standard to show us that we can't do it, so we must, we must just cry out for mercy. So something like the, the Ten Commandments. It's an impossible standard, perfection, we can't keep it. It is to show us how bad we are so that we cry out for mercy. Uh, Anabaptists, so uh, you can Google them, I don't have time to uh, go into, <laughs> into detail. They were at the same time as uh, uh, Luther and Calvin. Uh, they had some, some correct theology, but they also had some strange theology. Um, they interpreted the Sermon on the Mount in an overly literalistic way. So that's where you sort of get your Mennonites from. Uh, they're sort of the descendants and the Amish. They're sort of descendants of the, the Anabaptists. And they took things very literally. So, for example, uh, they, they, don't, they don't go to war. They're pacifists. They think when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, that's a mandate that Christians should never... Uh, be involved in any sort of violence. But that contradicts the other teachings of the Bible. And remember, when you read, we always have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. Uh, they also don't give oaths. Okay, So there are, again, so certain people who will say I, they won't go to court. They won't swear to anything because Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But Jesus himself went under oath. So we have a problem here. Okay, So we have to interpret correctly. Remember that for preachers... This is important to remember, is that a sermon can die the death of a thousand qualifications. Okay? So what I mean by that is, when you read Jesus, a lot of it really punches you, doesn't it? It punches you in the... It should. Okay? But if you absolutize what Jesus is saying, you'll come out with heresy and something that's not correct. You've got to take the rest of the Bible into account. Uh, when we say things like, if you continue in unrepentant sin, you're not a Christian, well, we can qualify that. It's not necessarily true. There are many people in church history who have done that, but it's, they were still saved, uh, and God eventually brought them out of that. But it loses its punch if I start adding all of those other things. Uh, and so it is with Jesus. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If he then added, but in certain situations, this and this and this, it loses its, its punch. It's there to convict us. When you say yes... Keep your word. When you say no, keep your word. Do what you say. Uh, that's what he's getting at. Uh, when he says, turn the other cheek, we will we'll look at that. That's a very interesting passage. Uh, but it, it, just simply to say it's not, against, it's not for pacifism in every situation. So those, I would say, are incorrect interpretations. It is for all Christians. Um, it is wisdom literature. It is wise sayings on how to live. Notice at the end, we saw that in chapter 7, when Jesus had finished these sayings, so it's sayings, Jesus is giving us these proverbs, these wise sayings on how to live, how God's people should be different, and it has a reward at the end. Okay? Uh, the hope that we have blessed are the poor in spirit, etc., etc.,
but it is for God's people, all of God's people, and it is not some unattainable standard. It is showing us this is what the Christian life should look like. This is how we should treat one another. This is how we should not be hypocrites. We have seen in Leviticus already that God's people are to be different. We saw it this morning again. Not to be like the other nations. And the Sermon on the Mount is showing us that to be a Christian means we must be different. Radically different. In the Old, in the old Covenant, the difference was, was uh, largely external, but as we saw today, also ethical. For us in the New Covenant, it is primarily ethical. It is that we are different. We are a people who show love. We are not hypocrites. A frequent phrase in the Sermon on the Mount is, do not be like. Do not be like. We are to be different, a different people. It seems that every generation can see the the faults in their parents, isn't that right? We can generally see the, the faults in our parents or in that generation. And generally, the next generation will sort of rebel in some way or react against it and try and be countercultural. The sad thing is that when you see the faults and the sins in your parents, the answer isn't, well, let's find some other idol or some other sin or something like that. The answer is here in, in Christianity, in Christ. And the church is to be properly countercultural. We are to be radically different. We are not to be hypocrites. We are to be men and women who love and forgive, have a different ethic on, in every sphere of, of life. John Stott said this, They were to shine like lights in the prevailing darkness. Their righteousness was to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, both in ethical behavior and in religious devotion, while their love was to be greater and their ambition nobler than those of their pagan neighbors. And so Christ here is calling his people to be countercultural. We're told in verse 13 of chapter 5, we are the salt of the world. Uh, we are the flavor, we are the preservative of the world. That's, uh, that's what we're called to be. Without God's people, this world has no flavor. Okay, did you know that? There is nothing beautiful. People, as we saw again this morning, people take everything good and pervert it and distort it until there will be no more beauty, no more goodness, no more truth if it were not for God's people. We are the light of the world. Jesus said he was the light of the world, but now he says that his people are the light of the world. We are to be a city on a hill. A beacon of hope and a place of love and that is different. Jesus confronts every type of person in the Sermon on the Mount. So whatever your background, Jesus, this sermon will confront you. He confronts religious people and irreligious people. He confronts Jews and pagans. The irreligious, in verse 46... Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Remember, tax collectors were those who had betrayed Israel. They were working for the Roman government. 
Uh, Jesus even says, when you discipline someone, treat them as a tax collector. So tax collectors were unclean, they were disregarded, cast out, rejected. They were irreligious. If you decided, I want to be a tax collector, you were rejecting religion. You could not be an, an Orthodox Jew, a follower of God, and a tax collector. And so the irreligious, Jesus confronts. He says, irreligious people love those who love them. There's nothing special in that. God's people are to be different. And I think it's quite interesting because what was Matthew before the Lord called him? He was a tax collector. He himself was a tax collector and the Lord called him and saved him. He confronts pagans or Gentiles, so those who rejected the God of Israel. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If you're only nice to, to people in the church, well then, you're just behaving like a Gentile. You're just behaving like an unbeliever. Unbelievers have their clubs and their communities, don't they? They have their country club if they're very rich where they go and play golf and they have gin and tonics together and all of those things. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But uh, that's their club. That's their society. Or, you know, you have your, your Liverpool supporters club. Uh, it's dwindling at the moment. But, <laughs> but people do that. They have their little communities that they join and their clubs and where they go and they love each other and they greet one another. And, and if you're outside of that, well, you know, we ignore you. But God's people are to be different. To greet uh, all those we come across. To show interest in all those that we come across. Whether it's the, from the, the cashier to the neighbor. We are to be different. Religious Jews. So if you're a religious person here. You think, well, that's, that's not me. I'm religious. The Lord Jesus says in chapter 6 verse 2. He says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. In the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by other. Religious people love to be praised. It's what's attractive about religion. One of the things is that, is that you get praised for it. Uh, you get to dress differently. People get to sort of talk about you. That person is very spiritual, very religious. Uh, they talk in hushed tones around you because it's external. No, that's what it says here. They want to be praised by others. The Lord says, when you help people, don't go and tell everyone about it. Don't take a selfie. <laughs> you know, just helping the poor here. Who cares? You've lost your reward. Why are you doing that? You don't need to tell anyone because that just shows you're... <laughs> you don't actually care about anyone. It's about you. You want praise. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, uh, when, you, when you do your religious things like praying, they want to be seen by others. They go and do it in public even. And so the Lord challenges. He'll challenge your religiosity. And we all have it. And he challenges religious Gentiles as well. Okay, so not even Jews, religious Gentiles. He says in verse 7, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. 
for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So no one gets a break in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone is confronted by Jesus Christ. Wherever you find yourself, even as a, as a child of God, uh, we, all, we all lean in certain directions based on our genetics and upbringing. Some of us are more religious, some are more irreligious, some are more like religious Jews, some are more like religious Gentiles, whatever it is. Uh, Jesus will confront us. In conclusion, I just want to give a brief breakdown of the Sermon on the Mount, just to, to, so you've got sort of a framework. Verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5 give us the eight Beatitudes, and they're the marks of Christian character and conduct. This breakdown is taken from John Stott. I think it's a, it's a good one. Uh, this, is, this shows us uh, what the character of a true Christian is with respect to our, our conduct to men and to God and the promise that there is God's favor that rests upon his people, blessed, highly favored. Verses 13 through 16 talk about a Christian's influence. I've already mentioned those verses. We're salt and we're light. If we live out the Beatitudes, this is the influence that you will have in your sphere of influence. But only as we keep that distinctive character. Verses 17 through 48, that's the rest of the chapter, is a Christian's righteousness. It has become popular in Christian circles to say, you know, we don't, we're not under law. We don't, we don't preach those things. We don't talk about those things. It's just the love of Jesus and we're forgiven. And, uh, and the church has become antinomian, anti-law. I know of pastors, even going through the epistles, who will skip over verses that are confrontational, that say, stop doing this and do this. Which is remarkable to me. How can you hold a theology that the Bible contradicts so clearly? (laughs) The Bible is full of commands. Jesus even said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I think most Christians read, I did not come to abolish the law, but to abolish the law. There are commands here. Jesus gives six illustrations on what Christian righteousness looks like relating to murder, adultery, divorce, swearing, revenge, and love. Jesus rejects the easygoing tradition of the scribes and reaffirms the authority of Old Testament Scripture and drew out the full and exacting implication of God's moral law. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, a Christian's piety or religious devotion. We're not to be hypocrites, as we've seen. Verses 19 through 34 of chapter 6, a Christian's ambition. What are we desirous for? What are we chasing? And here Jesus talks about wealth and possessions. We are to be different. We are not to be striving after those things, to be living for those things. Stott says Christians are to be free of these self-centered material anxieties and instead to give themselves to the spread of God's rule and God's righteousness. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 20. Now that we belong to Christ and we are part of his kingdom, relationships change. 
because of our link to Christ, there is a shift. And there are different types of people now, and we have to interact with certain people in different ways now. We are not to judge our brother, but we are to serve him, verses 1 through 5. We are also to avoid offering the gospel to those who continue to reject it. Verses 6, verse 6. We are to keep praying to our Heavenly Father and to be aware, to be beware of false prophets who hinder people from finding the narrow gate and the hard way. So there are different types of people now and the way we interact with those different people. And then lastly, verses 21 through 27, a Christian's commitment. Stott says, it is not enough either to call him Lord or to listen to his teaching. The basic question is whether we mean what we say and do what we hear. On this commitment hangs our eternal destiny. You can't just say, Lord, Lord, but not actually obey him and be sincere. Only the man who obeys Christ as Lord is wise. That's the person who has built his house upon the rock. And the rock is Christ. So right there, back there in verses 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus opened his mouth. That's an idiom for he taught them with authority. He opened his mouth and he spoke. And so as we go through it, Christ will speak to us through the Sermon on the Mount. Will you listen to him as he speaks to you? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Matthew. We thank you for this incredible sermon. As we begin this new journey through these chapters, we ask that you would please minister minister to us as a church. Use it to save. Use it to sanctify us. We, We long to be a community that lives like this, free from hypocrisy, full of love and gentleness and kindness, faithfulness to you without anxiety over material things. We want to be different. We want to be your people, Lord. We want to be a city on a hill. That people would come here to find refuge. And so please, Holy Spirit, work in a wonderful way. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.